but he did not choose to use Italy. He did not choose to use Uganda. He did not choose to use Japan. He chose Israel through whom came the promises and the covenants and the prophets and the law and Christ. They came to Israel, the beloved. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning regarding a most important, vital, crucial doctrine in the Christian faith. We call it perseverance of the saints or assurance of salvation. Lord, it's something so important, it's a teaching so vital, because in it we understand that you are the author of salvation. And as the author of salvation, if, if it's not sure, if it's not going to persevere, if it's not going to continue, then what does that say about you? I mean, every doctrine, every teaching that we study, that we learn from the Bible, reflects the character of Almighty God. Everything is re- reflects who you are. You are the creator of all things. You are the author of everything. And so what we understand is either rightly speaks of God or else it it distorts the truth about God. For these reasons, everything that we teach, everything that we learn um, needs to be according to truth so that we get it right And by so doing, we get you right. Lord, we don't want to distort who you are, and we do not want to distort the truth of of your word, the word of God. I pray, dear Heavenly Father, that you would help me, even in, in having put this together, but yet so much remains incomplete. I ask, dear Lord, that you would make it complete. You would fulfill, fill up what's lacking in the, in the speaker of this message, that it might be of grace, that it might be the Holy Spirit, it might be to your honor and to your glory. I ask these things in, in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. This episode is number 37 in the podcast that they might know, and it's entitled The Perseverance of Israel. And it's taken from Romans chapter 9 through 11. We're going to try to put an awful lot in today. God help me. Um, I I want to take this uh, all inclusively. There are times when it's necessary. And it's best, you know, to take one verse and go one verse at a time. I think, uh, and I would love to do that. I don't know if I will. See how God leads um, in these chapters. But for today... Uh, it just it's necessary to take it all in one. I don't know if I can do that, 
by God's grace, we will try to go through this uh, one verse at a time, but go through the whole of it as a whole. Now, the, the subject that we're looking at, what we're actually dealing with at present is um, the assurance of salvation as we, we see it from uh, Romans 8. Um, the Apostle Paul makes in no way or shrinks back from proclaiming the whole counsel of God, but declares all truth, and particularly on the matter of what Calvin called the perseverance of the saints. And that's found in Romans 8, 36 to 39, which we've done in previously. Um, but it begins in verse 35 with the question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is, you know, will... And he's asking it again in the form of a question. Will, will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, and he's quoting from the Old Testament, you know, for your sakes we are being put to death all day long. We're, we were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And that's the, the, those who are separated out to Christ through the saving work of the gospel, then are as lambs or sheep, you know, before wolves, as Jesus said. And in the midst of that kind of persecution and ill treatment, which people get confused about because, you know, well, you know, I belong to Jesus now. Why isn't he taking care of me? You know, well, but he's saying, and he, so he says, you know, what will separate us from this? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? And he's talking in reference to persecution. And then he continues in verse 37 and says, but in all these things, all these persecutions, all the hardships of life, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. It's Christ's love through the persecution, the hardships, the trials. For I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities. And he brings it into spiritual warfare in. He brings the reality of life that it, part of life is death. And, but the, in life, there's struggles and trials. There's angels and there's principalities. There's things present and things to come. I mean, he's including everything. What isn't present? You know, what isn't to come? Everything that could... And then verse 39, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing. Let's just trying to get everything he can by the use of these words. You know, as high as you can go, as low as you can go. Every created thing. He says, will be able to separate us from the love of God. Neither, remember, neither will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, from that context, closing chapter 8, the natural question that would be asked by any biblically alert believer would naturally follow that would follow such a statement would be a, a statement concluding Christian security or perseverance or assurance would be, what about Israel? What was undeniably clear 
during the apostolic age was Israel's rejection of their Christ, their Messiah, and the subsequent rejection of Israel by God. I mean, it was Paul himself that declared in Acts 16, uh, 18.6, sorry, he declared in, it was declared in 18.6 by Luke, his companion, and the writer of the book of Luke and also of Acts, where he quotes Paul that said, and when they persisted and blasphemed, meaning the Jews, he, he, Paul, shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I shall go to the Gentiles. It was God's will that that rejection would take place. It was you know, prophesied in the Old Testament, as everything was, as proof that God knew what was taking place because it was in the plan, his plan. And so he goes on and he says, he's done. I'm done. I'm turning to the Gentiles. That doesn't mean he was done completely, and we're going to show that with the Jews, but he was done for that time. It had come to that fulfillment where they were being rejected. Now the question then is, if God was rejecting the Jews, and he was beginning to do so, whereby the church during the coming centuries would be largely comprised of Gentile converts and not Jews, who would receive their promised Messiah, they would not receive, then what about Paul's statement, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Now for the solution to this dilemma, Paul will take uh, the space of these coming three chapters, Romans 9, through 11, to explain. And Paul will teach as an inclusive reason why the assurance of the believer is not harmed by God's choice to reject the Jews by the following seven doctrines. And we're going we're gonna to take these. I'm not going to really make this a doctrinal presentation, although doctrine will be all through this. Um, but these seven doctrines are mentioned. One, sovereign, sovereign election or God's sovereign choice in whom he will save. That's number one. Number two, Israel's temporary rejection uh, of, as first place in the proclamation of the gospel. They're being rejected, temporarily rejected, um, as first place in the proclamation of the gospel. Three, salvation by faith alone. Paul teaches that entering into salvation, faith alone is a must, but coming out of, of salvation, and equally important, is, and this is the fourth doctrine, faith is not saving unless accompanied by transformation or sanctification. Transformation of the sinner into a saint, which is sanctification. That's the fourth doctrine. Following faith alone, then faith is not saving unless accompanied by transformation. Number five, the ultimate rejection of the Gentiles as first place in Jesus' coming kingdom. That teaching is in here. Number six, so that five is the ultimate rejection of the Gentiles. Number six, the restoration of Israel as first place in ruling in Jesus' kingdom and fulfillment of God's promises to Israel in a thousand, literal thousand-year reign. And this is where a lot of problems come in because people either eliminate that or they confuse that thousand-year reign with eternity. And there's a two completely different kingdoms. 
Not that Jesus isn't ruling in both because he is, but one is earthly of this present heaven and earth, and the second is the uh, annihilation of this present heaven and earth and a completely new heaven and earth as we see in Revelations 21 and 22. And then the seventh doctrine is God's gift and calling are irrevocable, which is a principle that applies to all believers and is best observed through the nation of Israel. What? That God's gifts and calling are irrevocable. Very important. Now from that, I'm going to go to the text beginning in Romans chapter 9. And there we're going to see these these verses. And this is Paul speaking, and I quote. And I'll be going in and out of these verses. Please try to follow because I'm going to go quickly. I am telling you the truth in Christ. I am not lying, Paul says. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is just, he's he's just compounding the reality of the truth of what he's about to say that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. How great is this? For I could wish that myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. This flesh right here, he's not talking about sinful flesh, that flesh is used to refer to that which is opposed to the spirit as he's been going through in Romans 8. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about biological genetic flesh. And it's going to see, it's going to become clear. That he would be rather be accursed and separated from Christ. He's going to an extreme position, not that he'd ever want to be separated from Christ, who is his savior and it's his sovereign wills to save Paul. What he's talking about is his the depth of his grief over his brethren according to the flesh. Those who biologically, genetically, are related directly in the family of Israelite, coming down from Abraham. Who are, he states, Israelites. Who are Israelites? The nation of Israel coming down from Abraham. To whom belong the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. Who did this? Who did God give this to? Were they not all Jews? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and on down, Moses. Were they not all of the Jewish family within the human race? Yes, they were. They were adopted as, quote-unquote, sons. I'm not going to go into every detail to explain who's a son, who isn't a son, who's an Israelite, who isn't. I'm going to get that in the course of this, touching on highlights, but I want to read it all. I want, to encom- I want all of this to be encompassed. Right now he's talking about glory, to be- being, again, a son of God. But as he talks about that glory, and it's going to become clear that it's not every single Jew, that there's actually a remnant. But he's including them all right here because he wants you to know who he's talking about. He's talking about the nation of Israel as a whole, in general, right now, in this portion. And he includes them of those who are under the covenants given to Israel, 
the giving of the law that was given to Israel, the temple services, which were given strictly to Levitical priests who were strictly Jewish people, and the promises. Whose are the fathers from whom is Christ according to the flesh? Where did Christ come from? The lineage is there going back to David. Who was David? David was Jewish. Who did David fight against? Gentiles. When he went out and he got the foreskins of 200 to get himself a bride from King Saul, who did he kill? Gentiles. Those are not Jews. We're talking Jew and Gentile. We're talking the Christ who came through David, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Talking about Christ according to the flesh. Why the flesh? Because he was an Israelite. We're talking about the nation of Israel. We're not talking about some allegorical spiritual believer. That's not what Paul is talking about in verses 1 through 5. He's making it perfectly clear and only a person who denies and does not want to see what Paul is saying will deny this. And there are people who are preterists, amillennialists, whatever name they want to be called by, that do not see this. I'm not directing this, directing this to those people. If any of those hear this message, may God be merciful to all of us to bring us all to a spirit of humility. But may we all see what Paul is saying in verses 1 to 5. Continuing in verse 6. But it is not as though... The word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. What's he saying? Okay. So now he's making a distinction between the biological genetical to uh, the actual, those who are whole Jews and those who are just Jews in the flesh. Don't jump to conclusions here. Wait. Let's take it slow. What's he actually saying? But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendant will be named. Which descendant? Not just biological, but saved descendant. There are biological descendants, which he just went through, and there are saved children of God. Not children of the flesh, which there are, but there are also children of the Spirit through the promise, which is why he continues in verse 8 and says, that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise are regarded as descendants. What is he saying? Is he saying there is no such thing as a national Israel? No. No. You see, Paul is not in deep grief and sorrow that he could wish himself to be accursed for the descendants according to the promise who who are those who are saved. No. He is in great grief that he could wish himself to be accursed because not all Israel is being saved. We might look at our family, our individual family, of which I have huge family, 
And I have a picture at home that's got like 60 people, and that's not everybody, who attended a, the anniversary of my, my grandparents, which was 50 years. And I only know five people in that photograph out of 60 that came to Christ. Well, what about the 55? Well, they're lost. Could I wish myself accursed for those people? I mean, I'm not going to put myself in, in Paul's shoes here. I'm not that kind of a giant, but there's a deep and has been a remorse and a tears over my family that never came to Christ. You know, the Jews are Paul's families in Israel. I, he makes a point of that in this entire <clears throat> section. That's who he is. That's where the sorrow went to. Even though he says, look, real sons, real sons of the promise, these are people who are spiritual sons. They come into salvation. He didn't want to be cursed for them. They're in the kingdom. They're going to enjoy eternity with Christ. That makes no sense whatsoever. So the children are not the children of the flesh, but the children are of the promise. And he continues. Verse 9, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. <clears throat> and not only this, excuse me, but there was Rebecca also who had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not anything good or bad, done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Wow, that's, that's potent. And what he's saying here, and this is where we go into the doctrine of God's sovereignty, that before these people did anything good or bad, they couldn't make any choices. You know, if you're out there and you're among those who, who put uh, uh, free will in this idolatrous category, that man is free and therefore God is, and I spoke about that last week, you know, God is off the hook and that God doesn't send people to hell, they send themselves to hell. <clears throat> well, in this section, Paul is absolutely refuting such an idea. How then does God... What makes him sovereign? Well, he says in verse 11, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, I mean, can you get more clear than this, would stand not because of works, but because of him who calls. God is sovereign in salvation. It's got nothing to do with man's choice. It's about... God's choice. Before they're yet born, while they're still in the womb, God had this to say, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. With it, is it because they're different? Is it because one's better than the other? No, they weren't even born yet. They hadn't done anything. And it's not because God's looking down the corridor of time. They're both going to grow up to be sinners. They're both going to be rejected. They're both going to go to hell but God is placing upon one his sovereign, according to Jonathan Edwards, arbitrary will. Why? We can, I, I could begin to tell you why. Except that it's God's arbitrary will that he picks one over the other. The natural course would be that the older one would be the one who is blessed. 
But that's not what it says. It says the older will serve the younger. Why? Because it's God's choice that that's the way it be. He continues in 14, 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? He's being ironical here. What's the irony of this? There's no injustice with God. May it never be. I mean, he puts a big emphatic after that. For he says to Moses, and another quote from the Old Testament, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Look, these are emphatic statements that God is saying, look, I'm sovereign in salvation. I'll pick who I want to pick. And I'm not going to pick according to anything you say. He's older. You know, he made a choice for Christ. No, 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 no. That's not what's going on here in these scriptures. We can twist them. I did that myself years ago. But that's what it is. It's only to twist what Paul is being said. If you want to know the truth, if you want to be set free, because the truth alone can set you free. In this section, we're talking about sovereignty. There's a lot of things going on in these chapters. Here it's sovereignty. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills. I mean, can you get more clear than this? Free will? Yeah, free will. What's he saying in verse 16? So then it does not depend on the man who wills. Or the man who runs. But on God who has mercy. And then he goes into Pharaoh. For the scripture says to Pharaoh. For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you. That my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires. And he hardens whom he desires. So we can say right again, and he's not saying it here, but uh, immediately, but he, he's saying, so then God, who, are you telling me that God hardens people's hearts? Well, in the sense that he allows people to go on their way, that he doesn't save them, as he did in saving Jacob rather than Esau. He saves Jacob, he begins to soften Jacob's heart. In allowing Pharaoh to go his own way, what's going to happen? His heart's going to be hard. He's going to see all the working of God. He's going to see God saving people. But God is not imparting in him a saving spirit. And so therefore he just continues to get harder. So there's a sense in which Pharaoh hardens his own heart. There's a sense in which God hardens his heart. Why? Because he doesn't save him. He's not forcing sin on Pharaoh. He's merely allowing him to go his own way. And that course will be a hard heart. So then he continues and he says, because he's saying, then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And then he continues in 19 and says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? Well, uh, he gives an interesting answer in verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this. Well, it, see, he didn't soften things a little bit the way I just did. He just just plums right. He just plunges right into who are you to stand in judgment of God? That's where this should go. We're talking about God's sovereignty, and people want to either excuse God or they want to lower God. No, no, no. Paul says this is God's choice. Why? He's God. Look, you and I are not God. I'm not God. I don't keep the sun in the in its place. I don't keep the galaxies in their place. I don't keep the, the earth rotating. I don't control the weather. I mean, I'm nothing. God is everything. And it's his choice into what he does. And that's all Paul's saying here. So he goes on in 21, or does 
not the potter have right over the clay to make the same lump one vessel for honor and use and another common? What if God, through will, though, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience, patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? This is God who's demonstrating that he's sovereign and that he's righteous and holy and he sends sinners to hell. You know that thing that preachers don't want to preach about today. They just want to preach about the love of God. They mention the word sin. They hardly describe it. I'm not mean to, to de destroy anybody who's doing that rightly. But if a man is not preaching correctly the wrath of God, he's not being a help in proclaiming the gospel just like Paul does right here. He says that he's demonstrating his wrath. Why? Because he's righteous. That's the purpose of Romans. What is it? The righteousness of God. Chapter 1. Just read through 16 through 18 and following. He's talking about God's right to be holy and to judge sin. He continues in verse 20, 23, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. So now he goes from wrath and righteous punishment, and he goes to glory. And why he did so, showing, look, sin should be punished. But look at my grace for a minute. Let's look at God's grace for a minute. Because he equally did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. He didn't have to do this. The whole lump of dough we're going to learn in a minute is all worthy of hell. But he takes one and he molds it, you know, to be a, a, an ugly pot. You know, it's got its place, but it's, it's not gold. It's not fashioned and, and beautified and glorified, but it's still a lump of dough. It's just, it's, it's still this, the potter's clay. Even so, whom he also called, not from among Jews also, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and who was not beloved, beloved. Here's God's choice is now going from Jews and it's going to all Gentiles. And it shall be that in the place where it is said, to them, you are not my people. They shall be called the sons of the living God. Now he's starting to move out from his sovereignty to pick Israel. And not only pick Israel, but all the biological and then going on into the spiritual. But now he's even going into Gentile nations that weren't first chosen. And he's going somewhere with us. Because we're talking, remember, about perseverance of the saints. We're talking about assurance of salvation. Verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. And this is where Jesus is talking about the broad way and the narrow way. And the broad way leads to destruction, and only the narrow way leads to eternal life. For in verse 28, the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. But just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left uh, to us a posterity. And this is about spiritual warfare, because Sabaoth is the Lord of hosts, it's an army. We would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. They would have been totally annihilated. What shall we say then? 
that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attain righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. Now he's moving into the doctrine of faith alone. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because, and we're talking about the general population, not the saved, the ones that uh, Paul is sorrowing over. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were of works. By works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointing. And that was pointing to Jesus. Jesus came, and he was the stumbling stone. See, Jesus, God was going to save people through himself. I will deliver my people. And he would do it through the person of Jesus Christ, having become man and dying as a man for the sins of those who he would choose. So he goes on, brethren, in chapter 10, verse 1, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, Israel, is for their salvation. And all who would believe in in Christ is for their salvation. For I I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. Who had the zeal? The Israelites. But not according, in accordance with knowledge. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling. Jesus came to the Jews. He even said that. You know, look, he's talking to a Gentile woman. I'm not sent to, I'm not sent to the Gentiles, but to the house of Israel. Because he had to make this clearly known, that the Jews were not being saved by faith, and therefore they were rejected as a whole. Verse 3, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is through faith in God. Have faith in God. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by the righteousness, by that righteousness. This is the righteousness of God, not of men. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven that is to bring Christ down or who will descend into the abyss that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Stop trying to do it yourself. Basically what Paul is saying here. Moses is proclaiming the law of God that God would save men. Moses writes that man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. That's the righteousness of faith. And he says that in verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. So there's a, a righteousness based on law and there's a righteousness based on faith. The Jews were rejected because they were trying to do it themselves. Or who will descend into the abyss? He goes on, stop trying to do it yourself. That's where it's law or it's faith. So this is two different ways of salvation. There's human achievement and there's divine accomplishment. Human achievement gets you nowhere. It sends you to hell. Verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. 
that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. This salvation is by faith alone. This salvation is not based on works. Going into salvation, a man is saved by faith alone. Coming out of salvation or the result of saving faith is godliness, sanctification, transformation from a new heart. And he continues in verse 11, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Oh, we're back to perseverance. We're back to an assurance of salvation. Belief in Christ does not disappoint. And he goes on, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. He's, he's departed now, and recognizing that God has rejected the Jews for a time, and we're going to deal with that. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Salvation has been spread to all, all nations, including the Gentile nations. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? There's a plan. God's put it out there. It's the gospel that's gone out. Just as like the law was meant to bring people to a recognition that they were sinners and to look to the Lamb, which was a projection of Christ yet to come, and to, so that it might be by faith. There is this plan of proclaiming the gospel so that men will be saved by faith and not by works. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? I mean, it went out in the Old Testament and they did not believe. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Old, new, same gospel, same message. One prophesied to come, the other looking back for what Jesus accomplished. But I say surely, they have not all heard. Have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Not each and every individual, but it went out to the nations. But I say, surely, Israel did not know, did they? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not. Now, this going out is the church going out into all the world. Surely, they have not. They have never heard, have they? The world at that time didn't. But the world was going out. The, the church had been scattered. The church was being sent to Gentile nations. It would continue to our day. And so it goes out through all the world, not each and every person. And there, there may be that place where it's very hard. The persecution is so hard it can't get into it. But it's gone out all over the world, particularly in, in our day in the last couple of hundred years, but for 2,000 years, it's gone out, it's gone out, it's gone out. And it's gone out, he says, by a nation without understanding, will I anger you. But I say in verse 19, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. See, they had been rejected. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. As it goes out to the Gentiles, it's provoking Israel. It's, there's no other way of reading this. 
The voice has gone out, but Israel rejected. Israel did not hear. To this day, they reject. And look at the persecution by Gentile nations. It's just a huge stumbling block to Israel. And Isaiah, in verse 20, is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disappointed, a disobedient and obstinate people. Now let me catch my breath at this point and stop and say, this is a very important principle that has to be laid out here. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All people <laughs> over the whole entire planet are disobedient and obstinate. That's why people go to hell. That's why people are unrepentant. That's why people don't come to salvation. Because people are disobedient, they won't listen to God, and they're obstinate. Jesus Christ came, and let's not just forget that not only the Jews, but the Romans, everyone's included in that scene of the religious, irreligious, all people nailing Christ to a cross, calling out for his death. So while right here the attention is on Israel, the nation of Israel that's being rejected. All people fall, fall into this category. Like this could be said about all people. It's a remnant from every nation that has come to Christ since Christ went to the cross. The majority of people have rejected Christ and only a remnant from every part, which are the few that, that go through the narrow gate, the many reject Christ end of the Sermon on the, on the Mount. Let's, let's think about that for a second before we run headlong just to be critical of Israel. We're not doing that. We're going to take what Paul is saying here as we enter into chapter 11 to conclude on this matter of the perseverance of the saints and the point that Paul is making that ultimately uh, Israel is no different than any other nation, except that they come under the sovereign choice of God that he would use them in, in first place in, in what has come up to the point of Christ and then again. So let us enter into chapter 11 and read from verse 1 where Paul says, I, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. And he is not talking about and it's going to be very, it should be very clear that he is not talking about believers when he makes that statement. He says, for I too am an Israelite. He does not say, I am a chosen person of the promise who is ordained to salvation. He doesn't say that. He says, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. He's nailing in here a very important point to be understood that he's an Israelite. Biologically, by genetics, he goes back to Abraham. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah how he pleads with God against Israel. Now, I want to take this in context, and I want to make it clear, because
because I just said he's pointing to the nation of Israel. And the point has already been made that it's not all who came out of Israel are of Israel. And there is that distinction between Israel the nation and Israel the chosen. But those whom he's weeping for are of the nation. The nation is included in this. They're not excluded like the nation of Israel doesn't exist. So in verse 2, he continues, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He foreloved. He loved ahead of time because of his sovereign choice, which he's already made clear, as the potter is choice over the clay. Or do you not know, he continues what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. They're the chosen Elijah against the, who's part of the remnant, against the nation that's rejecting. And he says in verse 4, but what is the divine response Paul says to him? What is God's response to Elijah? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So out of the millions in Israel, the many, there's the few who are the, the chosen to salvation. But all Israel is included, is in, is included in, a, in a sense in the beloved, not as all as sons, but who were chosen as a nation even though they were obstinate and even though they were disobedient, as is all nations and all people. But he did not choose to use Italy. He did not choose to use Uganda. He did not choose to use Japan. He chose Israel, through whom came the promises and the covenants and the prophets and the law and Christ. They came to Israel, the beloved. Understand the differences. Understand the general. So then he goes on in verse 5 and says, In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. The 7,000 were the, race, were the remnant, and there's a remnant now. N not much has really changed when you really think about this. Verse 6, But if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Now we're into the doctrine of grace. And by God's grace, by God's sovereign choice, he chooses whom he will save and who he will exercise his grace in sending forth and sparing not his own son in order to save. So there's grace for the elect, in Isaiah, uh, Elijah, and the 7,000. And there is punishment for the masses. Verse 7, what then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. There it is. There's the remnant, and there's the rest. Like in every nation, since Christ has come, when, Christ, when God turned to the Gentiles, up until that time, no Gentiles except those named few here and there, were even saved at all. God opened the door for the remnant in every nation. Just as it is written, verse 8, God gave them a spirit of stupor, meaning Israel. Eyes to see and ears to hear not. Eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. 
which is the case in the whole of nations up to this point. And I'm, I'm saying these things and emphasizing this for a reason, where he's going. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a rip, retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Now, the point here is God's grace and his light was poured out on Israel for you know, 1,500 years, 12 to 1,500 years. And it were, they rejected it more than any other nations because the nations didn't have all those things, the Gentile nations, but Israel did. And they turned their backs, and, th- and there's a reason for this. Verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. There's a purpose in all of this that's taking place. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? How much more will their fulfillment be? Remember, there's been a remnant in every nation since their fall. Well, evidently, there's going to be something more than that. So he continues, now if their transgression is riches, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. The remnant continues, and some of them have been saved in every generation. If somehow I might move to jealousy and and my fellow country, save some of them, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, and not every glass person, but just a remnant in every nation, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? He's not primarily talking about numbers here. He's primarily talking about life from the dead, and continuing says, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also And if the root is holy, the branches are too. Now the root is Israel. The first piece is Israel. The branches are the Gentiles. And this is where he's going. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them, and became partaker of them of the rich root of the olive tree... So you got these branches and they're broken off. That's Israel. And you got other ones grafted in. Those are Gentile nations. He says, now if this has been the case, you're not the root. The root is Israel. And remember, the root is made up of both true Jew and obstinate, disobedient Jew. But they're broken off. And the root, though, the real root, is all Israel. But primarily, of course, those who are saving faith of Abraham. Do not be arrogant toward the branches, but if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You're not supporting Israel. Israel is still supporting you because all the scripture belongs to Israel. All the covenants belong to Israel. All the promises and the prophets came through Israel. Christ came through Israel. I mean, you want to end it. Let's end it right there. And he continues, you will say then to the branches, you are broken off, so I might be grafted in. Arrogant thing to say. 
quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. This is a big verse, verse 20 in chapter 11. Because this is where the Gentile nations stand today. This is where Christianity, and I'm not speaking for every single Christian, every single pastor. I'm not speaking for anyone in particular. I'm speaking that towards the end of the age, we're coming towards a time when things are going to be reversed. And they're going to be reversed because of this verse. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief. They were trying to work their way, and the Pharisees had corrupted the people. The teaching was awful. They were not teaching Christ or the coming of the Messiah. They were not teaching the laws that should have been. They were not teaching the promises and the prophecies. They were not teaching sin and evil as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all the prophets had done. They were teaching their own blasphemous works-related lies. And they were broken off for it. And so we are told, look, we're just standing on faith. There's nothing special about us. I mean, faith means we haven't done anything. God did everything. The faith is in God. He sent His Son. He gave the gospel. He inspired His Word. He, he, he's the author of all things that are good. All good things come down from the Father of lights. Nothing comes from within us. We get credit for nothing good, only sin. All the good that comes out of our lives comes from God. Do not be conceited, but fear. Knowledge puffs up. We have, the, we have an explosion of knowledge since the apostolic age. The apostles were humble. The, the apostles were not conceited. They did fear. Why? Because once they were disciples, they wanted first place in the kingdom. They denied Christ, they forsook Christ at his greatest hour of need, they ran away, and they took, and they were crushed under that. And in the grace of God, he made them apostles. Because they got to see themselves for what they really are. Do we see ourselves for what we are today? With our diplomas that we hang on the wall and our qualifications because of our great learning, which actually just puffs us up in our head. Because that's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1. Knowledge puffs up. It inflates our brains so we can't see who we are anymore. Careful. Be careful. For, verse 20, if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. That's me. That's you. That's us Christians today. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, make no mistake, this is the Jew, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, that's the true tree, which is Israel, which has the truth of God, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? And a natural branch is a Jewish person. There is two here. I don't want to keep going over it. 
There are those for whom Paul has been sorrowing, would, could wish himself accursed, the lost Jewish nation. And then there's the true who is not, doesn't want to be accursed for the saved. Let me say it again. And so he continues, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. He's not talking about the spiritual Israel. He is talking about the nation of Israel. Not every last person, but as a whole, there will be a humongous salvation that takes place at the end of the tribulation period that's coming upon the earth. Seven-year period. Which was not concluded, I'm not going to go into that now, in the prophecies of Daniel. There was seven hundred and there was meant to be 790 years, there was 783, leaving seven which were not concluded, which did not was not fulfilled. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob, not Israel. Jacob, that hard-hearted, stiff-necked liar who uh, was had to be chastened continually by God, but because God loved him, he changed him. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is going back to Isaiah 59. And Isaiah, where they cry out to him and they recognize him, which is yet future, even though it's spoken in Isaiah as something that took place because they're looking back to the cross. Verse 28, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, the Gentiles. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. This is the fathers Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God has not cast off Israel forever. God, has, God is a God who keeps his word. Why should I believe in assurance of salvation since Israel has been cut off? Because it's only for a time. And the remnant has always been there. There's no difference between Israel and the other nations, even during this period. God saves. And God's going to use Israel as an object lesson for when he restores them. As in verse 30, for, for the, even though the gifts and the calling of God are revocable, for just as you once were disobedient to God, Gentiles, now have been shown mercy because of their disobedient Jews, so these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. And that now is getting very close. For God has shut up all in disobedience that he may show mercy to all. Who is that, Jew or Gentile? They've been disobedient. But because of the mercy shown to you, they also may be shown mercy. Oh, and he concludes, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who can become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? No one. No one is given to God to get it back. God gives to us to, so he can get it back. 
And he concludes with these, these great prepositions for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I conclude this chapter with this unbelievable, rare truth that Israel is saved and they are saved just the way Gentiles have been saved for the last 2,000 years. And I want to conclude, conclude with Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount. And as we consider that we're supposed to fear right now, not be conceited, that we're not supposed to cr criticize Israel like there's some special evil nation that had to be rejected and not never used again. But understand this. That number one, in, in our nation, just to look at our nation, it's filled with entertainment. It's filled with all kinds of cults that call themselves Christian. It's called false Christianity by, by mega church size. And Jesus says this in concluding, nearing the end of the greatest sermon ever preached. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. That's shepherd, the clothing of shepherds. They come as shepherds. But inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorns, bushes, or, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, and bad trees bear bad fruit. Right now, churches across this nation are filled with people that are not true believers, and they reflect on those who are prophesying to them. Because the church has no accountability and anyone who signs a card, prays a prayer, walks an aisle, says they're a Christian, they are. God's not saying it. Men aren't holding each other accountable. They just go off, do whatever they want, come in on a Sunday morning, hand in their tithes and offerings, maybe, and then they're Christians. Yet, yeah, that's not what's going on here in the Sermon on the Mount. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit and nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Don't, let's not miss his concluding remarks. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. He who does the will of my Father Faith without works is dead, being by itself alone. Empty words mean nothing to God. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? There's the prophesying and the prophets and the disciple makers who are so few in the churches. And what they're prophesying, is it in Jesus' name only? And in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. If you go to church on a Sunday morning and you claim the grace of God and you live like the devil the rest of the week, expect that these words will be said to you. 
I never knew you. Depart from me. You practice lawlessness. Understand this. And what I want to c- conclude on, in, on the Lord's words. These are the Lord's words too. Not from the Sermon on the Mount. But now we request you, brethren, with regards to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. And this is that at the rapture being plucked up. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. That you do not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as it is from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one, anyone deceive you. For it will not come unless, what? The apostasy, the great falling away comes first. The great falling away? And the man of lawlessness is revealed that the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. The falling away is the church. The falling away is when people who are they're raising their hands and they're singing sing, songs to Jesus. They no longer song, sing songs to Jesus, but they take the mark of the beast. They give praise to the one who claims to be the Messiah, but he's not. And the warning comes to us and says, even the elect, if it were possible, even the elect would believe. It's not possible for true elect to go that far. But everyone who receives the mark, everyone who falls away, look, don't be conceited, but fear. That day is coming. Jesus is going to come back. A lot of people may not believe that in the church today because many people aren't even saved in the church today. But that day is coming. And it may be very, very close. But the falling away is going to take place first. And we can read that just that way. The church may see that. The church may be filled with martyrs as Revelation is filled with martyrs. Been martyred for 2,000 years. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the word of truth. It's hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for anyone who's looking at themselves in a mirror of the word and understand they are wicked people in the flesh, unaided by the Holy Spirit. Lord, all we can do is throw yourself, throw ourselves at your feet and say, Lord, I can't do this. I can't stand up against the world. I can't stand up against the devil. I can't stand up against the Antichrist. I can't stand up against the military. I can stand up in the spirit. I can't do it in the flesh. I can discern right from wrong. I can, I can see that I'm a wicked man and I need you every moment of every day. Lord, let the hearers of this message who think that Israel has been cast off and they, they put a medal on their own selves to see that that's conceit and it's not fear and that we all need to not be conceited, but to fear, lest this day come upon us and we not be prepared for it. Lord, I ask that you send your Holy Spirit to revive the church, the humble pastors who become unteachable and are so filled with words of wisdom and they're filled with 
knowledge that's just knowledge, it's just facts, and they haven't had the experience of Christ. They haven't experienced Christ in an intimate way. And that for that reason, Jesus is not even going to say to them, he's going to say to them, I never knew you. I never knew you intimately. And his words from his, his high priestly prayer from John 17, this is eternal life that they may, that I'm, they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That knowledge isn't even there. Gone to seminary, gone to college, full of knowledge, full of conceit, inflated in their minds, conceited with the lack of fear of God. Lord, there are those who are in your word who are true disciples, but they, they're taken away by conceit as well. And when, they, when you come back, they're, they're going to be ashamed. They're going to be ashamed because they weren't ready and because they had given their life to Christ and their, their life is filled with empty works of conceit. Lord, reprove us because we need it. We need to be humbled every day. I ask that you do it for your honor and your glory, even though I'm asking that you do it for our good so that we might hear, well done, good and faithful servant, and our lives wouldn't be filled with emptiness. We know sin was nailed to the cross. It's under the blood, and it can be remembered no more. But we don't want empty works on that day. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.